First, I want to welcome welcome you to the show and thank you for taking the time. Happy to do it. Uh, I saw your um, I saw your video with uh, Professor Jordan B. Peterson, and you were talking yeah. to him about uh, IQ. And I think that a lot of uh, person, a lot of people, are uh, interested to learn more about IQ and what is intelligence, as far as we know, uh, in today's studies. As you say, everyone is kind of inherently interested in intelligence and where it comes from. And the question everybody secretly likes to ask is, "Do I have enough, and can I get more?" You know. And it turns out that intelligence is a very important psychological variable uh, because it predicts so many things about real life. And this is no surprise. I mean, you know some people who are intelligent and you know some people who are not so intelligent. And uh, for some things, it doesn't really matter. And for other things, it does matter. If you want to go to engineering school, You need a certain level of intelligence to learn that material because that material is complex. So anything that involves complex learning, you need some level of intelligence. The more complex, it doesn't mean you can't learn it if you're not extremely smart. It just takes you longer to get there. Intelligence, uh, so intelligence is, is important for success at complex jobs, not so important for less complex jobs. And this, this is kind of an obvious thing. The interesting thing for me is why some people turn out to be more intelligent than others. And many people believe this has to do with their culture and their environment. And this has been the predominant view for decades. And that the feeling is if you take people who are having trouble in school, who have cognitive difficulties, these difficulties come from the fact that their early environments did not stimulate them enough. And so that if you can provide stimulating environments, if you're a new parent, you want your infant to be, or your child to be stimulated uh, in school, you want good teachers, stimulating teachers. But it turns out that the actual research on this doesn't show a clear picture for the role of environment and culture. It doesn't show no effect, but it doesn't show a strong effect. Interesting. The, strong, the strongest effect seems to be genetic. And this makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. And... I think it makes people uncomfortable for the wrong reason. People believe widely that if something is genetic, it's determined, it's fixed in stone. That's an English expression. You can't change it very much. Um, but we now know in the 21st century from, a tremendous, from tremendous advances in understanding genetics, We know that it's, it's not really accurate to think of genes as deterministic. It's more accurate to think of genes as probabilistic. It, if you have certain genes, certain combinations of genes, that increases the probability of something. 
So there's no one gene for intelligence. People who study the genetics of intelligence, I believe there's probably around a thousand genes related to intelligence. Now, this is an extraordinarily complex thing to figure out. You know, how, how one gene works is a, is a major research effort. How a thousand genes, <laughs> but it's worse because those thousand genes don't act independently. They affect each other. So we don't even know the best way to study these kind of genetic interactions. And some of those genes will interact with environmental variables and some won't. So it's a very complex picture. But in my mind, it's complex, but it's a finite problem. There are a lot of combinations, but it's not infinite. And this is what neuroscientists do. You know, they take the nightmare of figuring out genes, and over time, you know, with many, many people working on this around the world, they figure it out one step at a time. And so the reason I'm optimistic about the neuroscience of intelligence is that I think sooner or later we'll know what the key genes are. We don't have to know all thousand necessarily. We'll know what the key ones are. We'll figure out what they do in the brain. And then once we figure out what the genes do then and how they work, then you can figure out ways to manipulate those genes and the processes with the ultimate goal of increasing intelligence for everybody. <laughs> and that, a pre that is a pretty scary thought. Now, I've heard that a lot. <laughs> you explain to me why it would be scary to have more intelligence. Wouldn't that be a good thing? If it's for everybody, yes. Why not? For uh, people that can afford it, I think it's a bad thing. But if it's for everybody, I think it's a good thing. Well, Did it make any of sense? course. And this, this, this is why we need to have a discussion about the possibility. This is not going to happen tomorrow. But we need to shift the discussion away from spending a vast amount of money on changing environments or class sizes or all things that we know don't matter that much, even though they, they, we think they should matter. When you do actual empirical research, they don't matter that much. And we need to shift our funding to things that will matter, like neuroscience research on intelligence. And we need to have a public discussion about what to do when we find out what these things do. Imagine the, the, a good treatment for Alzheimer's disease or schizophrenia. These diseases, especially schizophrenia, has a genetic component, a strong genetic component. We don't know what the genes are. We don't know how many genes. We don't know how they work. But once we do know the genes for schizophrenia, the important genes for schizophrenia, then we can come up with drugs to change those effects in the brain and perhaps cure or at least treat schizophrenia, possibly prevent schizophrenia. 
Is it is that scary because only rich schizophrenics will be able to afford it? <laughs> uh, no. no, it's not because we assume that healthcare programs, healthcare policies, at least in Europe, will take care of this. <laughs> not so clear here. And the same with genetic process in all of, of medicine, whether it's schizophrenia or, or uh, Alzheimer's disease or, or depression or Parkinson's disease or low intelligence. So you can see it all in the, in the same way. Hmm. And, the, and it, ironically, the more genetic something like intelligence is, the more likely we'll be able to figure out the genes and how the brain works to change it. Because we don't know how to change environments very well. We don't know how to <laughs> cure poverty, for example. I know that we have a CRISPR. This is pretty interesting. Yes. So now there are techniques, only in the last couple of years, there are techniques that are relatively simple, relatively inexpensive to make changes in a person's genetic code that would be permanent changes, as I understand it. Now, if you have to change hundreds of genes to affect intelligence, this is not so easy, but it's not impossible. It's somewhere between possible and extremely difficult. <laughs> but it's not impossible. From what we know uh, into this in today's research, is it possible to hire uh, to train our mind to have a higher IQ? There are a lot of claims of various ways to increase IQ. I don't believe any of them. Zero. Interesting. And in order to understand that, we have to make a distinction between an IQ score on an IQ test and underlying intelligence. An IQ score is an estimate of a person's intelligence. It's not a direct measure. So uh, if a, a kilogram is a direct measure, 10 kilograms is exactly twice the weight of five kilograms. A kilometer, 10 kilometers, is exactly twice the distance of five kilometers. An IQ of 140 does not mean you are twice as smart as somebody with an IQ of 70. That's not the way IQ scores work. Technically, an IQ score is an interval scale whereas distance and weight are ratio scales with an actual zero. I discuss this, by the way, uh, in some detail in my book, The Neuroscience of Intelligence, which is written for the public, actually, to understand these issues. And you can read uh, a free, free excerpts of this on my website, richardhire.com. There's my, my plug for your listeners if they really want to get into this in more detail. But people who say that they can make an IQ score go up after some training, don't understand this distinction. And I'll give you an example. Yes, please. Suppose you take 
an IQ test when you're sick and you have a 102 uh, degree uh, temperature, you're, you have a fever and you take an IQ test and you don't do very well. A month later, you're well, feeling good. You take the IQ test again and your score goes up. Do you think you got smarter in that month? <laughs> no, of course not. The first IQ score when you're sick is just a bad estimate of your underlying intelligence. The second IQ score when you're well is a much better estimate. But it's it's still an estimate. We don't have a direct measure of intelligence yet. Working on various possibilities. But IQ scores, when you say IQ, that's not the same thing as intelligence. And I'll go one step further. Intelligence is made up of different mental abilities. But all of those mental abilities seem to have general reasoning ability in common. And that general ability that underlies all mental abilities is called the G factor. And the G for general, G for general, And the G factor is what's mostly genetic. Okay? But the G factor is not the same as intelligence. It's a component of intelligence. And IQ is only one estimate of intelligence that includes the G factor and other things. So if you're going to do research, scientific research on intelligence, Most of it, especially the neuroscience research on intelligence, like what I do, is on that G factor. Now, that's not the only part of intelligence. And people talk about it as if it's all one thing. But the G factor, I believe, is the single most important element of intelligence. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that that does make sense. And I read read, uh, a study that, Uh, I uh, become known to me yesterday. Uh, it was a study from uh, intelligence is associated with the modular structure of, intris- of intrinsic brain networks. Uh, yes, I do. Intelligence is associated with the molecular with the modular structure of intrinsic brain networks. Have you heard? And of I that? believe that is uh, that is correct. I know this group of researchers. This is a relatively recent article. Yes. And I've read it and I think they get it right that uh, you can find um, uh, characteristics of brain connections that are related to intelligence and certain parts of the brain are related to other parts of the brain. And those connections are related to intelligence. And so we're beginning to understand Not just what brain areas, it's not just simply a few areas involved. There are several, actually there's maybe a dozen brain areas involved, but it's the way those brain areas communicate with each other that's really important. And we now have the, the, uh, the, the methods, the brain imaging methods to make uh, uh, uh Uh, empirical connect we we can study the connections among the brain uh empirically make quantitative uh, assessments of brain connections and it turns out 
they are re- those those brain connections are related to intelligence. Now, it's not just the number of connections; it's more complicated than that. Uh, and probably this brain connectivity is is mostly a genetic wiring of your brain um, and trying to figure out how that influences your brain as, as you develop from a child to an adult. This is a, a challenge, but you can see we're making tremendous progress from just 10 years ago. If I understand you correctly, Richard, intelligence is uh, in some way how fast you can understand uh, let's for example if you are talking about a subject and uh, when we are talking about a subject we have different subjects in the to- in this topic if you can see the pattern for example that's in some yeah. way a predicament of your intelligence if you can see patterns in a pretty fast way is that is that correct understood most researchers believe there are two basic kinds of intelligence that are related to each other one is called a crystallized intelligence and that's based on how much you know how much you can learn how many facts you can acquire but the other is called fluid reasoning fluid intelligence, and that's based on your ability to use information to solve problems, especially new problems that you've never encountered before. The G factor that I described earlier underlies both of those, but it's more related to fluid intelligence. It's just general reasoning ability. It's what you do when you don't know what to do <laughs> you figure things out okay how uh, what studies have shown that it that um, our environment does not uh, do anything to our uh, iq score or intelligence i think you're talking about a twin study or something in uh, your book there are a couple of different kinds of studies uh, in behavioral genetics So you can look at identical twins. Identical twins tested on IQ have a very high correlation between their IQ scores. Well, you might say, well, identical twins are raised in the same family. You would expect this. But the correlation between identical twins raised in the same family is higher than the correlation of, of siblings raised in the same family. Moreover, if you look at identical twins who were separated at birth away from their biological parents and raised by foster parents, where each twin was raised by a different family, the twins grow up, they take an IQ test, their IQ scores are not only highly related to each other, but they're correlated with their biological parents who they've never seen and not with their foster parents with whom they've grown up. That's the kind of data that suggests very strongly that there's a genetic component. But all that was known in the last century. All that was known at the end of the 1900s. That's not new. What's new on the genetics of intelligence is DNA assessment. And now you can collect DNA on people and look for genes And now they are finding genes related to intelligence. 
And um, it's a it's an extremely hard thing because each gene has a tiny effect on intelligence. And the people who study this have estimated that in order to find these genes, you will need sample sizes of a million people. But guess what? These samples have been collected in the last year. And so right now, people are analyzing DNA and intelligence on samples of a million people. And these papers will be coming out in the next year or two. Wow. So the whole genetic story is less speculative than it was 10 years ago when people complain that the twin studies don't really show what people think they show. We're now right into the DNA. And there are worldwide consortia of research groups pooling their resources. And that's how they get to a million people. This will be, and these, these samples will be studied for, for mental illnesses like schizophrenia and depression, but also for other things like uh, intelligence. One question that is interesting for me is what if the father is, I don't have low intelligence and the mother is intelligent? How can the offspring become intelligent or not? This is the great thing about genetics, if you think about it. If you are born into a really terrible environment, and if environment determined your intelligence 100% with no genes, you have lost life's lottery. <laughs> you don't have a chance, right? But genetics is more random mixing of mother and father and grandparents You have a whole line on both sides of the family where you got genes, and it's a genetic lottery. That's why in, within a family, one child may be very intelligent, and their brother or sister may be more average, even though the parents are the same parents. Parents can be average, but you can have a child who's extremely smart. Parents can be extremely smart. Their child can be average. This is the genetic lottery. Yeah, so <laughs> and some people win it and some people don't. But it's it's a it's a better lottery to be in in many ways than the environmental lottery. So true. Have you heard about uh, it is not related to intelligence? I'm just curious. It was a study a while back that uh, children that attended Montessori schools Uh, were better CEOs than people that did regular uh, did uh, attend regular schools. Have you heard about this before, Richard? Not about that specific study, but the problem with studies like that in general are that kids who go to Montessori schools have parents who believe in the Montessori system, and they tend to be more educated. If they're more educated, they tend to be brighter. And so you have a confounding in a study like that between the environmental effect of the Montessori school and the fact that the parents may have passed on genes for higher intelligence of those kids. This is a common problem in studies like that. I don't know that particular study. I have a son. So uh, what can I as a parent do to uh, stimulate their intelligence in the best way possible? There is no 
study has shown conclusively anything specific that a parent can do to increase a child's IQ. In general, you want to be sure you talk to the child as much as possible, you know, read, stimulate their brain with whatever you have available, and make sure the nutrition is adequate. But what you're really doing there is making sure the child lives up to their genetic potential. And they will do that almost irrespective of what you do. (laughs) If you think about this from an evolutionary point of view, you know, kids don't remember much before age four or five. There's a good reason for that when you think about, you know, would you want to remember things from when you were six months old or one year old? <laughs> you know, and, you, and parents try all kinds of things, you know, um, but evolution has made kids relatively immune from all the different crazy things parents try. <laughs> that's my perspective. That's, that's my view on it. So, you know, I have children. I have I have children, and uh, you know we just did normal things, and we didn't overdo anything. Um, I wasn't concerned when they were six, seven, eight years old when they played computer games. We just didn't let them play all the time, you know. So uh, you, you you know your own children. You'll see their temperament unfolds from the first day. Yeah, so true. You know, it's often said. You know, person, per, certain personality characteristics also seem to be highly genetic, like introversion, extroversion. So whether your child grows up to be an introvert or an extrovert probably has more to do with the genes. But whether they grow up to be a spoiled brat, <laughs> that has more to do with you. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is the parent for sure. How does a smart brain look like? Well, this is what that article you just showed me a few minutes ago is getting at. They're trying to find, and this is my own research, we're trying to find those brain characteristics that are related to higher intelligence and then figure out how those brain characteristics develop. And to the extent to which they're genetic, we want to know the genes involved. We want to know how those genes work. And we want to know what environmental variables may influence the way those genes work. So one environmental variable that probably is important is the amount of stress in a child's life. That probably has bad effects on on the way the brain develops. But we don't know this yet. And ironically, we won't be able to, to find out the environmental effects on genes until we identify the specific genes. And then we can study what environmental influences those genes positively or negatively. When did you start researching intelligence, Richard? Well, uh, in graduate school, I was in graduate school in 1971 to 1975. And when I was a graduate student, one of the professors there named Julian Stanley started a program to identify mathematically precocious children, age 10, 11, 12. And these kids tested very high on a standardized test of mathematical reasoning. And I was involved in that study. So he would identify these kids, 
And then uh, some of these kids he helped get into college at a very young age, like 14, 15, 16. And they went on to uh, have very good uh, careers. Um, and this study called, this was at Johns Hopkins University. So it's the Hopkins Study of Mathematically and Scientifically Precocious Youth. And uh, this study is still going on today. And it's been replicated all over the world. And they have now done a 40-year follow-up. And they're working on the 50-year follow-up of these kids that I helped test in the early 1970s. And it turns out that the single test score, when they're like 12 years old on a standardized math test, predicts great success in life. Uh, A lot of them go to college early. They have more PhDs. They have more patents. They have more novels and, uh, and publications. Um, so um, it's another example of how uh, test scores on standardized tests of mental abilities early in life really predict a lot about uh, the future. Not everything, of course, but a lot. And that's, so that's when it started getting interested. And then in the 1980s, when brain imaging with positron emission tomography became available, I had early access to one of those machines. And the first study I did was looking at uh, brain imaging while people solved problems on an intelligence test. And we saw what parts of the brain were most active. And we had this very interesting finding that was complete surprise that the harder the brain was working in certain areas, the less well they did on the test. Okay. This was a shock because we expected the harder the brain was working, the better they would do on the test. But it turned out it was the opposite. It turned out that having efficient brain communication used less energy and having an efficient brain was more related to intelligence than having a brain that was working very hard. And we published that paper back in 1988. So between then and the kinds of work we do today with brain connectivity, like we discussed earlier, this is an amazing trajectory of this kind of research. What we did in 1988 by today's standards is very rudimentary, very basic, much more sophisticated today. And that's why I'm so optimistic that we're going to understand uh, on a brain level and on a genetic level why some brains are smarter than others. What part of our brain do we use if we, for example, solve a math problem? It's not one part of the brain. There's a network. And it's not just the network. It's how the network operates, how these areas in the network communicate with each other. And a lot of this communication happens in milliseconds, very fast. And the the communication happens in milliseconds, but repeatedly over several seconds or several minutes. So it turns out it's a very complex thing to study with brain imaging. But again, it's not impossible. Complex, but not impossible. That's the one thing I want to leave your listeners with. Have you heard about uh, Have you heard about nootropics? Yes, nootropics are drugs that allegedly increase mental ability. 
there are drugs that will increase your attention, make you pay attention better. Some of these are used in children with hyper attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity disorder. When people without that diagnosis take those drugs, they typically fall asleep, though. <laughs> those drugs don't necessarily work. There are a lot of students in high school and college who take all kinds of drugs, uh, believing that they help them study. And uh, there's research on this. I've never been convinced that any of it does any good. I wouldn't recommend any of it. And there's absolutely no evidence at all that any of these things increase your G factor, your ability to reason. Uh, and I've not seen, you know, I, I, I know the, the, the work on memory training and the claims that it raised IQ. I think that's now completely uh, debunked. I mean, nobody pays attention to that much anymore. Even earlier, decades ago, there was the idea that if you listen to a Mozart sonata, this would increase your intelligence. This turns out not to be true. <laughs> uh, so whether it's drugs or Mozart or memory training or playing computer games, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of claims. No research, in my view, supports any of this for raising intelligence. Now, something like caffeine does perk you up and does make you pay attention more. Amphetamines do this. But there's no evidence that any of that increases your IQ or increases your, your G factor. It's the focus. You might increase your performance. I mean, uh, in the military, some of these drugs are used when people have to stay awake for 24 or 48 or 72 hours. Those drugs help. Uh, but there are downsides to that as well. What is the downside that we know about? Well, for some of these drugs, there's an addiction aspect. Um, but the, the, the effects, the positive effects, if there are any, are very temporary. They're, they're, they're just for certain situations. There is one thing I'm uh, extremely curious about because I've been making podcasts for one and a half year and I've been interviewing you probably 100 people that is highly in their field for example Mount Everest or professors and whatever it is what I can see as a common trait is their ability to be focused over time does does the focus has anything to do with intelligence people when they're working on a problem when 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 Nobel Prize winners for example write about working on a problem getting an insight They're, they tend to be very focused in their work, even though the insight often happens when they're not thinking about the problem. They're going for a walk and thinking about something else, and suddenly <laughs> they get an insight. So, so true. And this is kind of a, something about creativity, that it often uh, works best when you're not focused. But for intellectual problem solving, there often is a maniacal focus. Very, very sharp focus. Some people, some people focus better than others. Uh, it's very difficult for some people to stay focused. Uh, other people can like a like a tunnel, <laughs> you know. Uh, so there are individual differences in all these things. Uh, but intelligence is something separate. All these things might matter, like like motivation. 
like the ability to concentrate or, or to focus. All of that is in the service of intelligence. If you don't have high intelligence and you're still very focused, you can, you can do well, you know, but you won't do as well if you have the combination of things. Because uh, neuroplasticity has to do something about this. Neuroplasticity refers to the fact that when you learn things, that changes your brain. My, the way I think about this is some people have brains that are more plastic than others. And why is that? And is that related to intelligence? So, yes, everyone's brain changes when they learn things. Some people learn more. Is that because their brain can accommodate more plasticity? We don't know the answer to that. The reason I'm asking this question, Richard, is that uh, I'm, uh, besides uh, making podcasts, also work as a mental trainer, uh, helping people overcome obstacles or train their mind. Uh, for example, a cross-country skier or, or whatever it is. I see that if people use a lot of uh, high state of emotion when they're trying to learn something, they are learning faster if, and then, then if they are not in this uh, high emotional state. So doesn't that also coming into consideration when you're talking about neuroplasticity and intelligence? Yes. So the the short answer is yes. The longer answer is it's complicated. <laughs> and I don't know really the the answer because when I talk about intelligence, I'm very focused and narrow just on this concept of the G factor. In everyday life, the way you find your way in everyday life, it's not just the G factor. It is focus, it is motivation, and it all takes place in an emotional landscape. Now, the brain seems to have different networks for intelligence and for emotion, but they overlap, they interact. And this is why, why some people talk about the problem of why really smart people do really stupid things. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's not just intelligence. You think of the old Star Trek with Captain Kirk and the, the Dr. Uh, McCoy and Spock. So McCoy was very emotional. Spock had no emotion. <laughs> You know, McCoy was, uh, Spock was completely rational, you know, IQ guy, intelligence guy. McCoy was all emotion, and Kirk somehow was a blend of the two. And that, in some ways, is what everyday life is like. You have in all these things going on emotionally. You have all these things going on cognitively and reasoning, and you have to find your way in life using all of it. Are there any other research into human cognition I have not asked about that you find interesting, Richard? Well, I think the combination, in my view, the combination of brain imaging and genetics is really pushing intelligence research forward. For a long time, intelligence research was more or less limited to psychometric issues about testing. And that's very solid research. That's very good, solid research. And it's 
And building on that is the way imaging, brain imaging, and genetic research is going forward. So we're now taking that psychometric information and studying it with the most modern neuroscience methods. So as as intelligence research becomes more neuroscience-focused, we're making all these interesting observations that, you know, 20 years ago were not possible to talk about intelligence and, and the brain, really. So uh, I, I'm very optimistic about this. I think uh, it, it's interesting uh, for everyone to understand things about intelligence because it impacts education. It impacts your, your work life. Um, the, but they're not limitations necessarily. They're things to understand as probabilistic. That's the other thing I want to get across. Probabilistic rather than deterministic. It was uh, one other st- leadership and that the people that uh, uh, did high did have a higher IQ uh, did not uh, did not um, score well as leaders uh, if they for example had 120 in IQ they did not do well with people that had less IQ than, than themselves have you heard about this study uh? I, I don't know that particular study but we all know from our experience that just having a high IQ doesn't mean you can do everything. We know people who have high IQs, we wouldn't want to sit next to them at dinner. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah, you so know, true. I know a lot of these people. Uh, and then there are, there in, a, in, a, in corporate leadership, requires lots of skills separate from I, IQ. Uh, I, I know some uh, corporate people who say, I don't need to be smart. I can hire smart people. <laughs> you know? That's so true. Uh, in the military, what determines leadership under military circumstances is not just high IQ. There are many other factors there. Uh, and the military usually is good at identifying potential leaders and, 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 and training them. And you don't identify leaders, whether in the military or in business or in academia, just based on IQ. You know, the dean of the, of the medical school is not necessarily the smartest person in the medical school. So true. You know, I can tell you that from, from my experience as well. <laughs> It is. Uh, it it was one thing that you were talking with Jordan about, and that was uh, people that uh, are having a a low IQ. And I, if I remember correctly, Jordan was talking about how he was trying to help somebody have an, uh, having a low IQ. And how can we do that if we are working with somebody, if you have like a family member or something that is having a low IQ or low intelligence? How can we communicate with them, with them better? Yes, Jordan Peterson and I had a, a whole conversation about this. Um, it depends on how low the IQ is. You know, um, there are people that do not have the mental ability necessary in a modern economy to work in a high-paying job. And there are only so many low-paying jobs And then what happens to the other people? Well, in some countries with a strong social safety net, 
those people have enough uh, resources for shelter and food. And they're not forced to live in poverty. They're not forced to do work they can't do. Uh, in other countries, they're more unfortunate. And it really depends on the safety net. Not everyone can go to college and learn that material. It's just a fact. Uh, somebody with an IQ of 80 uh, is not going to do well in complex jobs. It's not clear what kind of job a person with an IQ of 80 can have in a modern society. You know, it used to be there used to be farm work or factory work. Yeah, it was routine and could accommodate that, that people with, at that end of the IQ distribution could, could do. They never were paid very much. But now automation, robotics have taken over a lot of those jobs. Uh, so this is a real problem. And Jordan Peterson and I discussed various possibilities uh, in terms of social policies to address that. And I don't know about that very much. I have opinions, but I don't really know about that. It's not my expertise. What I'm interested in is whether neuroscience can find a way to take a person with an IQ of 80 and get them up to 95. Because when the difference between 80 and 95 in terms of your ability to work and, and support yourself and, and make a good salary, that's an enormous difference. Now, and I, that's a 15-point a IQ difference is very large. <laughs> and whether neuroscience can do this, I like to think it can. Is it going to happen tomorrow? No. But I think people who are working on this, just like the people who are working on the genetics and the neuroscience of schizophrenia and Alzheimer's disease, it's a, it's a, a complex set of problems. But it's not impossible. So true. Do you think that the people with a low intelligence understand that they have a low intelligence? I, I, I don't know. I mean, people generally recognize their limitations, uh, generally. There are some people who are completely deluded. <laughs> and, and, you know, I don't know if you have television shows like, um, like the ones um, where people would sing Amer uh, uh, American Idol. Yes. You know, this kind of thing. And when in the early parts of those shows, when they're auditioning <laughs> people, you know, and they do this deliberately to embarrass people. I don't I don't think it's a good thing. But there are people who think they're terrific <laughs> and they're not. They're not even remotely good. And this fascinates me on one level. I don't know what to do about it. But, you know, there are people who just don't have any insight into their limitations. I think one of the uh, ways you succeed in life is to understand your limitations even better than you understand your strengths. Uh, and then this makes you very realistic in terms of setting your goals and accomplishing goals. In, in the United States, there used to be this idea of the American dream. And it used to be the American dream was if you work hard, you can be successful. That has changed in America. It's morphed into 
you can be anything you want to be. <laughs> if you work hard, you can be anything you want to be. This is not the same thing as if you work hard, you can be successful. Because being successful doesn't tell you, you know, I, I could work very hard to be a theoretical physicist. I'm not going to be successful with that. <laughs> you know, I know my limitations. You know? um, and there was no experience in my environment that I could have had that I missed that would have allowed me to be a successful theoretical physicist. I'm interested in that. I read about that. But I know I can't do that. <laughs> you know, so um, understanding your limitations, I think, is an important aspect. Are there anything else in that I haven't asked uh, you about that uh, people can learn about in your book that is interesting for people? Um, a lot of people are, are who are not uh, a lot of students of neuroscience and psychology uh, are reading my book. A lot of educators are reading my book. Because it turns out in the United States, at least, educators tend to ignore individual differences in intelligence. It's kind of a topic people don't are, are, are uncomfortable with. But I think my book, by explaining the research, explaining what it means, explaining what it doesn't mean, uh, this is helping, uh, I think, uh, people in education understand the role of intelligence. Uh, and just, uh, I'm getting a a lot of positive feedback from people who aren't students who are just interested in the topic because the book is written really without a lot of technical language and it's written to explain what the research is, where it comes from and what it, what it means. So I think many of your listeners might, uh, might find it uh, a, a, an interesting read. That is why the book is not a bestseller. <laughs> title of the book from the neuroscience of intelligence to how to use neuroscience to make you smarter i think the book would be a bestseller yes. unfortunately it would not be that would not be an honest book <laughs> that, that is for sure richard thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me well i'm happy to do it okay good thank you <laughs> thank you for your time richard have a nice day bye-bye